Okay, so we're going to get started here. And again, this is a live a live podcast. Um, yeah, this is going to be uh, kind of raw and uh, informal. We both said, let's just keep it informal. So we didn't actually plan ahead anything. We said, let's actually not just to make it natural and conversational. So I'm going to I'm gonna kick us off. Please. And uh, if I screw up, can I get a redo? Or? <laughs> I, I, it's a recording. It's, it's recording right now. So it's, uh, okay. it's, we can edit it. All no right. Problem. Hello, welcome I to... I edit it all the time. Oh, come on. You no, somebody... Up. somebody no, I messed up. <laughs> somebody just said... Uh, uh, we never edit it. No, I edit it a lot. So. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Try I again. rarely edit, edit my podcast, even if I kind of mess up. I just I have to listen to the whole recording all over oh, again really? so I can find any mistakes and edit it out. Welcome to a joint podcast between Theology and the Raw and the Rethinking Hell podcast. My name is Preston Sprinkle, and I'm here with my friend Chris Date from Rethinking Hell. And we are at the Rethinking Hell conference. This is uh, the fifth one, Chris, is that right? Yes. The fifth one. We are in uh, kind of north, I got my geography right, northeast-ish Dallas, Texas. And uh, there has been uh, just wonderful discussions, presentations. I guess I can't say that because I'm one of them, but I I think it's been... Yours was acceptable. I think think it's been a a good uh, night and morning so far. Uh, So far, there's been three presentations. We're still waiting to hear from you, Chris. But uh, I presented last night. um, I mean, my title had to do with the last like four minutes of my talk. But basically, uh, I I did. uh, My my focus was on uh, like a biblical theology of the fate of the wicked, looking at various passages and background material. And then uh, Dr. Craig Evans presented on more more specifically on uh, Mark 9, where Jesus talks about people being cast into hell and, and, and argued for uh, Isaiah uh, 66. Well, obviously it's Isaiah 66 background, but then talked about how early Jewish usage uh, correlated Isaiah 66 with uh, the term Gehenna. And then Greg Allison just gave a, uh, a historical theology defense of eternal conscious torment, arguing that this has been kind of the consensus view of the early church and we need to take that that tradition seriously. And Chris State's going to argue from the atonement uh, this afternoon. So uh, how do you, Chris, you're, you're initial thoughts on this morning uh, do you have any lingering questions or maybe emphases things that you know we should we should kind of walk away with so far what's your been been your general impression oh, you're really putting on me on the spot uh, <laughs> I don't know it, it's been really enjoyable so far first of all I'm really grateful that uh, dr. Allison was willing to come out and sort of put himself in the lion's den as he did uh, so many of us being conditionalists mm-hmm. um, and I take very you know somebody in the audience I don't know if you're here but said uh, when you talk so much about tradition um, it sounds very Catholic uh, I don't think so I think it it sounds very Protestant. Uh, being Reformed, and that's probably going to rub a lot of you the wrong way, but being uh, Reformed, I take very seriously tradition, and I don't think that it should be easily overturned. And I think that uh, Dr. Allison is right. There there has, I am going to challenge a little bit this idea of there having been a consensus, um, but for the most part, he is right. There has been a, a, a consensus, and we have to take that very seriously. I just think that presentations like yours and Dr. Evans, and if I can say so, the presentation I'm going to be giving are grounds for challenging that presumptive authority. Um, and, you know, I'll leave that up to you to decide. But the the point I'm getting at is I actually, I want to take Dr. Allison's side here a little bit and say that one thing we should take away is we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss a consensus of the church. Um, do take it seriously. And I would hate if there's somebody here who's on the fence and suddenly after tonight, bam, you're you're a beaver in controlling mortality. I think that's a little too quick. Take your time. Take yeah. it seriously. And um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, people people ask me how come, you know, it's taken you so long to land where you do on annihilation. And, and it was really the, the weight of the church tradition. I mean, I, that's, I, I, I wanted 
take that seriously. And I don't want to be so arrogant that here I am in 21st century Western America with my ex-Jesus that I can overturn, you know, a, a massive way to tradition. I will say, though, I mean, our tradition is a bit checkered. I mean, mm. um, misogyny <laughs> has been, in fact, a lot of people who use quoting, I could also quote their statements on women and how women have been treated and how even marriage is really designed for procreation alone. That's been a consensus as far as I know. Or anti-Semitism. There's been a lot of that in Christian history. Uh, slavery isn't quite uniform, but that's the, that's been a big part of our tradition and obviously flat earth and, and several other things. So I, uh, our, our, our tradition is checkered. Now I say that not to say, oh, therefore we dismiss it. But, you know, um, I guess I'm, I am a little more um, eager or I, I, I want to say cautious, but a little more maybe 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 less less cautious than than um, some of my ECT friends would be in overturning the tradition. I, I, I was the question I wanted to ask and in, in, um, like literal flames. Has that always been part of the tradition as far as you know? I mean, there is that um, <laughs> the, the metaphorical thing, the, the, the flames being metaphor for some sort of separation or torment seems to me to be somewhat novel historically. I could be wrong about that. And if there's anybody who's a historian, uh, correct me, please. But when I look at uh, like, for example, um, not uh, just a few years ago, there was this whole strange fire conference. Right. And there was this big hullabaloo about charismatics and, and um we sort of riffed on that in an article at Rethinking Hell saying that the real strange fire was actually this fire that somebody named Felix uh, very earlier in the church described, which is a fire that literally melts off people's flesh, but simultaneously regenerates it forever and ever and ever. Um, that idea, and, and then you have the language of Edwards and Spurgeon who talk very, you know, in stark terms about you know, almost like a spider being hung over or dangled over a pit of flames writhing in torment. And it seems to me that this idea of it meaning something like separation from God and not to be taken literally is rather novel. And that's why um, it's actually it's actually traditionalists who uh, not too long ago were accused of being soft-hearted and backpedaling on hell because they were taking this sort of separation view of hell instead of a literal flames view. Um, and even Al Mohler cautions, cautions against that in his contribution to Hell Under Fire. So I would say I th I personally think that this separation stuff is is a way to try and soften the, the idea because many of us do have a real strong revulsion to the idea of the, of the literal flames. What would you say about the way of the tradition. So I'm, I'm not a his, his historical theologian. I, I've, I've done some work in like pre-Augustinian, uh, kind of pre-Nicaea um, fathers in certain areas. But so my understanding is that there, there was a, quite a bit of diversity prior to Augustine. Mm. We've talked about that. I mean, several, you know, uh, Athanasius, Irenaeus, and several others, they're, you know, big, big names. Like these are you know, not on the fringes of, of the early church that would have been more, it seems like there were conditionalists. Then Augustine comes on and, and obviously a massive influence, very clear. It, it doesn't just assume ECT, but really argues for it. Mm. Um, and then after that, it seems not not uniform, but that is the dominant view. Mm. Do you have any uh, thoughts on how that came about, how there was this kind of diversion, all of a sudden, boom, it's just like one view for you know, the next thousand years or so. Well, I think you put the nail on the head. I think that um, I think that in, Ath or, uh, in Augustine, you've got somebody who's extremely intelligent, extremely respected, and deservedly so. And I think that his influence is deserved. Um, and I think that, you know, it's sort of, everybody sort of followed in his footsteps. Uh, I, there may be more to the story than that. And I certainly think that there's more to the story the later you get into church history when, you know, it's going to start becoming a, a, a capital offense to disbelieve in the traditional view. And nowadays, there are professors and pastors who will lose their lives livelihoods they even consider an alternative to the tradition. So, I mean, I'm better able to explain why it persists. I'm less able to explain wh why that turning point happened with Augustine. Um, that's, I think it was mostly his influence. Yeah. 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 Uh, I got what, and if you guys have any questions, you can go ahead yeah. and, and come up here. Um, what do you think about, he made an interesting thought about the, the uh, uh, Greg did about um, the uh, need for a, this to catch on, we would need almost like another reformation. Mm. Um, do you, uh, do you agree that's not going to happen in, in our lifetime or do you, do you find that that's 
necessary is that for this view to really have credibility, for the, for the annihilation view to have credibility? Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if I would go so far as it has to be like the Reformation, but I do think it is going to be something like that, given the presumptive authority of the tradition that Dr. Allison described. Um, there was another part of your question that I started to pick up on, and I've already forgotten. Uh, oh, do you think that the, the, the a Reformation... In our lifetime. Yes. Right, yes, yeah. 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 No, so this is this is a tough question. I, I do think, I mean, especially with the advent of the internet, the gatekeepers of the tradition are no longer able to prevent uh, curious, interested hearers from hearing what it is that people like you and I have to say. Um, so, so I do think it, yeah. they're not going to be able to do that any longer. And I, and I see the tide changing. I mean, you've told me about pastors and professors you've spoken to who are in the closet. Uh, in other words, there's all, they're already there. Can't say so yet. And I think that'll. I think here's the thing. Before you, before you come back, the reason why I'm reluctant to assume that that perception I have is right is because they thought the Christianists and annihilationists in the 18th century America thought the same thing. Often quoted a guy named Jacob Blaine who thought that the traditional view was on the verge of collapse. There were so many Christians, he said, who mm. held to the annihilation of the lost that it, there's no possible way yeah. the tradition could come back and, and dominate. It did, yeah. right? At least in the States. So, you know, I think we're on the verge of that happening, but, you know, something could happen and change it. I think it part again. of the problem too, and I want to get to your question. Yeah. <laughs> Is that I mean there's so many things you said I want to branch, but the the, the internet's huge. That mm. that is I mean the Reformation happened. It wasn't because Martin Luther. It wasn't because the of printing press Romans. Right? It was the good news. The printing press, and mm. now the internet is like printing press times a thousand. And so like you said, now there's exposure to views. Me, I found very how many like like stalwart. I was saying word like I know very few evangelical leaders and thinkers who are who advocate for ECT because they thoroughly studied the issue. Mm. I mean you you, you debated. Somebody, I'm not going to name any <laughs> names, but he's one of the brightest humans I've ever even heard of in the Christian faith, and he almost wasn't aware of as the passages in the discussion. Like people aren't really racing to become an expert on hell. So I know very few who have actually done that. I think in the biblical material and 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 you know champion ECT. There's you know a dozen or so names you can think of that have published or written on it. And but, I mean, the overwhelming majority of people who are like, oh yeah, that's totally what I believe. Mm -hmm. What do you think about Isaiah 66 24? And they're like, I don't know, what does that verse say? You know, yeah, they're right. not that aware of the yeah. discussion. And in fact, I think um, uh, Glenn Peoples, a uh, uh, part of the Rethinking Hell team, he once said that um, uh, his experience, was, and this has been the experience for many of us, we're, we're encountered with this view, this alternative to the tradition, and our immediate thought, particularly if we're apologists who've interacted with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and things, our initial thought is, oh, come on, I can think of a, I can think of a hundred verses that support the doctrine of eternal torment. Okay, name some. Well, you know, and, and you know, there's a little bit of hemming and hawing, and you might be able to come up with what you call the big three. I think we gave you that term. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, I think it was Ronnie Demler, in fact, who originally hooked us up that came up with the phrase Big Three. But but for the most part, yeah. And, and even the ones they do quote, like Mark 9, they're not aware of its of its Old Testament background, let alone its intertestamental uh, background. Um, so yeah, I don't think that I think I think what's happened is most most people that are not sort of in the trenches like we are, they've just assumed that the only people who question this are liberals and soft-hearted, you know, people who can't hack can't can't countenance the idea of a wrathful God, and they think that uh, they think it's just Jehovah's Witnesses and so on and so forth. Those are the only people who question this traditional view, so they don't feel the need to go into the level of depth that one must really do in order to have this conversation. Yeah. Good. All right, first question. Great, and you can direct it at both one or just put out. Yeah, great. Appreciate that. I appreciate the discussion. 
discussion and the charitable nature of it and all that. And, uh, um, you know, Preston, you, you said last night that, uh, hey, we follow the text, all call, right? And yet we acknowledge tension and, and acknowledge missed our, the limits of our understanding, right? And, um, and, and, you know, you said about, hey, this person who kind of rejects or whatever, and God chooses to torment them. I mean, you could worship God like that, right? And, and so, um, yeah, and, and you said at the end of theology, and they're all, uh, you know, not that long ago, hey, I mean, we believe that God is good, and we believe that God is loving, and that he's going to do the right thing. And, and I agree with all that, you know? And yet, as I study the scripture, I mean, I, I can't find a reason why I could not be among the deceived, you know? And so I find myself kind of in the Christian universalist camp along the lines of Robin Perry, because I feel like if I can't trust God to save everyone, then I can't yeah. trust God to save me, you know? And, and I feel like, I mean, the traditionalist or the, the annihilationist perspective, uh, I feel like they, they must be willing to say, hey, I, I trust God to do the right thing. I trust that God is good, even if he sends me to hell, even if he annihilates me, you know, this is what I, what I believe. And so, I, yeah, I mean, why am I not among those in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, you know, who seem genuinely surprised that they're not in kind of thing. And so anyways, I just love to hear your comments on that. That's a great thought. Yeah. Is God just, even if he sends me to hell? I mean, I guess I, my answer might be a little too simple um, that if I, you know, do trust the scriptures and if, if salvation is through confessing that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart, God raised him from the dead, which I do, I actually do. Do I waver and doubt? Do I disobey him? Yeah, absolutely. But when it comes down to how is somebody saved by faith, I, I have that, I have that confession. Um, and I guess you would say, well, yeah, so the Pharisees, they thought so too and everything. And and yeah, that's a, um, I don't know. Yeah, I guess for me, I, I don't, so I don't, I, 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 hopefully I would say yes, if, if I have not met the, and this is going to sound so works righteousness, but if I have not met the, whatever the criteria is for salvation, then God in his perfect justice, if he is good, he is God. And if I have not met the standards he requires, which I would take faith in Jesus Christ, then, then yeah, that should be, that would be dust. I, I, I say that theoretically, obviously <laughs> I would be weeping and gnashing my teeth too. And, you know, um, yeah, that's a, yeah, the, the universalism, I, I scare people. Well, I scare my traditional friends when I say this. I mean, <laughs> I, I think there's much more biblical credibility for universalism. Than my, the, one of the only, not, the main reason why I'm not a universalist is the strength of annihilation, really. And I think that by definition rules out universalism. Whereas I tell my EC friend, like the burden rests on you. You believe in consciousness. You believe in a uh, body. You believe that the, the human person is fully intact. And yet, obviously they would repent after being tormented for a few minutes, hours, maybe a day or two, they would hold on and finally, all right, give up, you know? So you're saying God who wants all to come to him is preventing, will not either accept their repentance or he seals them so that they can't repent. And there, maybe there's biblical arguments for that. And you can, you can do that, but that the burden of proof would rest on them. They are alive forever and ever and ever. As me, if you face judgment and are annihilated, that by definition rules out universals. Unless, unless you say, you know, at that judgment, everybody can. So, uh, so I, yeah, Robin Perry is, I mean, he's a friend and he's a brilliant scholar. And, and when I read his book, I was like, wow, this, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's no joke. And his contribution to the book you edited too is really, oh, really man. good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, almost almost better than somebody we would have it, liked to have done. It, better it was it was probably the most compelling <laughs> yeah. essay. In it the was book. it was <laughs> theologically. I don't know about biblically, but theologically. <laughs> well. uh, I just want to say an answer to the question that was asked, uh, and this is going to sound. This is a very reformed answer, but it's also genuine. I mean this. Um, firstly. Uh, um, why me? Why why am I among the saved? Well, that's the whole point of grace, right? It's not merited. It's not. It's not. It's egalitarian fairness. It's not based on how smart you are or how righteous you are or how uh, loving you are or whatever. It's it's just God's grace. And so why you know why me and not somebody else? Uh, I have no idea, but thank God I am. If I am. But as for the second question, what if I'm not? Um, am I okay with God annihilating me? Uh, none of you are in my thought life every day. I am in my thought life every day, and I'm really wicked. Really. 
wicked. Um, that sounds harsh, but it's true. I'm, I'm prideful. I'm lustful. I'm greedy. Uh, and the list could go on and on and on. And so, yes, I, I have a very experiential sense of the fact that I deserve to die. Experiential. Uh, let alone biblical and theological. So no, I would not have a problem. I mean, yes, I'd be scared and I'd be terrified and I'd be, I, I hope I'm not gnashing my teeth in anger because I feel like I deserve it. But um, but yeah, I do very much feel like I deserve it. And next question. I'm a first time caller, long time listener. <laughs> <laughs> I hope this is okay to sit here like this. Yeah. Um, I do have a question, but quite honestly, my heart really burned with this last question of yours. And so who's someone who's not reformed, and yet I'm a conditionalist, will quickly say that a a few years ago, after a routine surgery, I had an artery rupture, and as they were rushing me, this is where it really meets the road, rushing me into the hospital, into the emergency room, or into back into surgery, this thing played out in my heart. As I was praying, the first prayer was easy because it was a conditional, I mean, it was a routine surgery, and I really was confident I was coming out the other side. Things were a little different as they were rushing me, and I'm bleeding out. And I'm praying, I'm talking to my God. And I told him, I said, you know what? I know how wretched I really am. I mean, I had honest time with the Lord. I said, I know how wretched I am. And as a conditionalist and someone not reformed, I said, God, I know how good you are. I know how just you are. I know how holy you are. Whatever you deem concerning me, I have absolute peace. Amen. And I had absolute peace as they threw me over onto the surgery table. And I woke up, as you know. So, <laughs> uh, Thank goodness. Yeah. So uh, my, my question is concerning presumed authority. Did I say that right? Presumpt presumptive, presumptive authority. Presumptive authority. Although I think there was somewhere said presumptive uh, privilege, kind of uh, like that a little bit. And the question that was asked about how quickly this thing could turn around, my thought is, is just look at a model that we have. Do we have a model? The question is this, do we have a model? And that throughout church history, just as an example, the 70th week of Daniel was fulfilled throughout most of church history, people believed, and correct me if I'm wrong. And then yet in a short amount of period or a short amount of time, we have a great portion, it seems like the biggest part of the church that believes in the 70th week of Daniel being future. It was a quick turnaround with what I believe is a biblical, uh, a weak biblical case. For this, we got a strong biblical case. How much quicker could this be turned around? You got any thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, they're percolating. Oh, uh, yeah. So, um, I, I think that it makes a ton of sense if as human beings we were rational people. And I don't I don't think we we are very rational. Uh, and so, um, when, when, when you've got peer pressure and social pressure and you've got professional pressure and all these pressures and and just the, pre the pressure of how could so many Christians that I hold in such high regard have been wrong on this? You've got all that pressure. Frankly, the weight of the biblical data may not play as big a factor as, as you and I are inclined to think that they probably will, should. So um, I guess, so yeah, I, I'm not sure that the weight of the biblical evidence means it's likely to happen faster than dispensationalism, I think is what you're describing. Um, I hope so, though. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree with Chris. And there's a... Um one of the most influential books I've ever read is by a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. Haidt the Righteous Mind, Why Good People Disagree on Politics and Religion. It just shows that the most sound, robust, rational arguments will rarely convince anybody of something if they're committed to that position for. And, and he shows, I mean, he's a secular Jewish psychologist. But he shows, I mean, that psychologically, that's just how we are as humans. You, you don't you're, you don't start to question your your ration. You don't start to ration until you first desire to do it or, or you know, there's something going on psychologically that needs to kind of open up uh, before you even consider rational arguments. Um, so yeah, I, I agree that I think as, as much as the biblical data, see, see, I mean, there seems to be some clear 
really clear passages like Second Peter two six and many many others that um, I yeah I show people and they kind of it's like deer in the headlights and like because the assumption is your view is unorthodox it's heretical my pastor who's smarter than you who you know was at my bedside when I was sick doesn't agree with you and there's so many there's such complex psychological things going on to prevent somebody from seeing the text and saying oh yeah you're right that's that's exactly what it what it means and I know because well not only was I like that but I am I'm like that with probably other things right now there's yeah. probably what am I committed to that you know, when I hear, I'm like, oh, well, that's not right. Now tell me your view, you know, like <laughs> explain it so I can show you why you're wrong. But that's, that's the mindset that we have. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I think maybe the in a post-internet age, it might be different. Also with younger people, I, I know very few people, church planners and so on that, you know, are under 40 that are very open to Christians. Or even like, I'll explain it. They're like, oh yeah, it makes sense. You know, like, what about tradition? What about this? Whatever. Like, well, I, I believe the Bible, this makes more sense about it. And yeah, that, that sounds good. You know, it's, it's just that the resistance isn't really there. So um, I, I, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see in the next 10 years what where the weight of evangelical thoughts. By the way, before we come to the questioner, uh, I know what I, one thing I wanted to comment on earlier. You said uh, you think there's more biblical evidence for universalism than for the traditional view. I'm actually inclined to agree. I still think it's almost zero. Um, <laughs> but what I will say, and I've said this before, so this will come as no surprise to some of you, I think the debate of the future is between conditional immortality and universalism. So I think it's very plausible that in 10, 20 years, uh, conferences like this will be primarily the kind that we had in 2015 between conditional and universalism, it'll be more that than the traditional view. Yeah. But I could be wrong. Yeah. yeah. So regarding uh, tradition, like even in the church today, we've, uh, the predominant view of maybe soteriology is more Armenian, uh, semi-Pelagian even. Um, we had people leave our church because they accused the pastor of preaching heresy. They didn't understand that they were semi-Pelagians. They were actually the heretics, right? So things have shifted so much, but I wonder if this kind of Armenian semi-Pelagianism, a lot of that is driven by uh, the doctrine of eternal conscious torment, right? Understanding, even trying to hold in your mind that idea, like I think Allison quoted Don Stott, just it's unconscionable. Like you can't even think on it very long. I wonder if just the very thought of it drives people into a realm of saying, if that's true, then everybody has to have an equal chance, right? And then versus somebody who's more reformed, my, my struggle is the Bible drove me into reformed theology and I held this view of eternal conscious torment. And so I'm like, wow, now I'm reformed and I don't like Romans 9, but I'm going to believe what Romans 9 says and God is God, th that whole path. But now I'm like, wow, Bible led me to a reformed position, which created tension. And yet maybe the Bible is also leading me to a place. I'm just wondering if you think that Long, long way to get to the question that the doctrine, a, a biblical doctrine of eternity could help lead uh, a kind of heretical church that are semi-Pelagians into a more biblical view of, of God's salvation. I'll go first on that one. Ahead, uh, yeah. I, I think that's that's an interesting question. Um, first of all, I want to say, I think that my friends and brothers and sisters in Christ who are not Calvinists, of whom most of you probably are, uh, would say, even, even if conditionalism is true and, and if it becomes the dominant view, it's still not going to make Calvinism any more palatable. So uh, I want to say that. That having been said, if I'm not mistaken, one of the breakout speakers, I just found this out uh, two nights ago. Uh, one of the breakout speakers, I think, did a paper on the incompatibility of eternal conscious torment and Calvinism. Um, and he is a traditionalist. I mean, he's going to be advocating in his breakout session for eternal conscious torment. Again, if I'm not mistaken and getting my wires crossed about who we're talking about. Well, so on that thesis, it's very conceivable that yes, if conditionalism becomes more dominant, at the very least, even if they don't come all the way to the truth of Calvinism, at least they'll come, <laughs> at least they'll come, uh, you know, like you said, out of semi-Pelagianism and at least to some something like an Arminianism um, or, or I mean, depending on how you do open theism relative to semi-Pelagianism, maybe that too. I think it's plausible. Yeah. I don't have anything to Okay. Yeah. All right. Two questions, very simple. 
couple. The first one will be um, engaging someone um, with conditional mortality. Their colleagues going. Um, the question would be: What if you had one question or one statement to say to them to really get them thinking? What would it be? And the second one has to do with near-death experience. I'll wait. Time. Yeah, for me, um, I like to ask people: why, why do you believe what you believe? Like, so you hold to this view. Can you expect? Like, just explain to me why. Like, what? Why do you believe? And then, if there is something there, then then I would say, well, what would it take for you to change your view? Again, in most conversations with these kind of real tense illogical things, there's a lot of fear in people, and everybody's going liberal and the slippery slope and everything. Um, I, I want to know up front: is this even worth a conversation right now? If not, we can just talk about football or something. I, I just I <laughs> hockey. <laughs> yeah, hockey. <laughs> um, because again, going back to that book I referenced, The Righteous Mind, it's like people sim- simply will not change. I've been in conversations about other debates. You know, Bible open. You know, English and Greek, and sitting across the table and being accused of being unbiblical. And I'm like, okay, well, here's how I'm interpreting this passage. How do you? There, no, no Bible open. Just like, like. <laughs> so you're a you're a biblical Christian, right? Yep. Where's your Bible? <laughs> like, I'm I'm showing you from the Bible what I believe. It's just it's not going anywhere. And I used to really engage that and get frustrated and whatever. Now it's just like I kind of feel it out ahead of time. It, it, can I see? Is there any room here for some sort of dialogue? Um, if there's not, then I just honestly don't. So yeah, what, what? Why do you believe what you believe? And and then what would it take for you to, to change you? Um, I wouldn't ask Greg that. Like, what, I just can't. What would it take? Would it take a more reformation thing to happen, or individually, would you? If you need to see certain things that happen, be to change you. Well, as a historical theologian, I'd imagine you'd say there needs to be some something more than just the right yeah. yeah um for me i've had a lot of success with uh isaiah 66 24 uh, i remember uh several years ago <laughs> we there, in the facebook group and by the way if anybody's not a part of the rethinking hell facebook group it's a ton of fun there's also a little bit of uh sometimes there's more heat than light but usually we we, good, we do a good job of keeping it light um but there, i remember one time there was a good week or so where we kept coming up with these memes uh these conditionalist memes and one of them was was a picture of a of a uh, koala bear on a tree and he's holding he's holding holding the tree he's looking at the camera and his eyes are wide open like you know what was that and i put on there isaiah 66 24 talks about corpses you know and i've had i've had people who will quote mark 9 48 that worm will not die fire will not be quenched i'll say go read isaiah 66 24 what, what do you make of this and they're like hey that's that's interesting i don't know what to do with that no you know some of the, the more staunch of them will be like oh well that's just symbolism for the second death or something like that but that's a, that's typically a good way to people to think oh maybe it's not quite uh in fact i think glenn peoples might have been the one who yeah i think before i became a conditionalist that was one of the things that glenn peoples got me uh, to think about merely so as for near-death experiences do you want to elaborate on yeah. At all? Okay. Basically, I, so after three years of, of investigating this, listening to podcasts, reading, pretty well convinced of conditional mortality, I wanted to conquer the intermediate state. And so uh, I read, uh, I, I started listening to Glenn Peoples' podcast. I got overwhelmed. The, the philosophical nature of it, I stopped. But um, non reductive physicalism, uh, soul sleep versus a conscious intermediate state. Um, I, uh, the Liberty professor uh, who specializes in this. Habermas? Uh, yes. Uh, he talks about evidential near death experiences. Okay? And I've had some very close people that have passed away. And and uh, you, know, you hear about these uh, experiences of people recognizing things uh, on the rooftop of the hospital, things that there's no way they could have known unless their spirit was separate from their body. And I didn't know, uh, to me, that's a pretty strong pushback against soul sleep, but I wanted to talk about uh, those evidential near-death experiences, not the ones that can be taken away with oxygen deprivation. Before, before you answer that, I just want to caution. This is important because as a ministry, we've made a very conscious decision not to camp in this doctrine uh, because, because the reality is as a team, we're mixed. I am a non-reductive physicalist. Uh, uh, and others in this very room on the team or not. So just be aware that what we're giving here is not really directly related to the topic, uh, but we'll certainly share our thoughts. Maybe. I just do, I do, as somebody who, again, is, is a continuationist, a charismatic on paper, at least. Um, I'm, I'm, and I was raised, 
raised in John MacArthur's camp, so very much wasn't raised in an environment. So what, I just want to qualify that before I say what I'm going to say, but I, I still do. I just have a hard time not, uh, neither believing nor disbelieving experiences because my Hindu friends will say they died and met Kali and Kali is the right guy, you know, whatever. And like I, Muslims and never atheists will say, I, yeah, I, I had a near-death experience. There is no God, you know? So I don't, I, I again, I don't, I would have a less enthusiasm taking somebody's experience because even just psychologically, I mean, we we have the capability to have made up with all kinds of stuff that is or is whatever. I mean, our minds are weakened. I mean, so any, any psychologist, you go to say, and your memories, you, you have the capability of forming memories that never happen. Whole stories just to cope with trauma. So the complexity of the human mind makes me kind of, again, not distrust people as in that didn't happen, but not always trust them either. What I can do is I have a, a God-breathed out text that I can see these words and, and, I, and I can try to interpret them. So that's really where, where I want to focus. My answer to the question is, I think it's um, interesting that the first thing we go to when we see this kind of powerful evidence is it must be some sort of uh, disembodied conscious state where they can see their surroundings and so forth. I think that's, I mean, let's let's put aside whether or not the evidence is in fact strong. I'm not convinced that it is, but let's 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 assume for the sake of argument it is. Why should the first conclusion we leap to be people must be conscious in death? What about precognition? I mean, the mind is incredibly complex and we, we don't know much about it. Maybe there's precogn- precognition going on there. Uh, in other words, seeing the future, right? Um, I mean, we do have, uh, prophecy has every bit as sound a biblical precedent as disembodied conscious existence. In fact, I would argue more so being somebody who doesn't believe in disembodied consciousness. So I, I think that there are, I guess, I, I guess what I'm saying is let's, let's be, even if we accept the strength of the evidence, let's at least explore other explanations besides merely disembodied experience. So I have a question, but I, if I could just speak that a little bit, because I love that topic. Love that. I've heard the same stories on SDR. Shout out to Greg Kokel and SDR. Interacting. Um, Thank you. We'd yeah. love to interact with them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so I've, and some of those are really interesting. Cognition is one thing, but I think something you have to take into account is uh, the assumption of our tools, which is not something, it's just something we think about, I would say, in the same way that most people think about it, don't conform, and they have no idea they're making their inherent in the culture when you just So, like, there there are certain worldviews, and I learned physicalism where it's not that the spirit is inside the body, but that the body is inside the And so, the uh, finiteness, the limitation of the body is something that you think of it as body inside the spirit, and and hard to wrap. Um, and then my second question is, it's kind of a, an observation, and then a question on top of that. I find in most of the interactions I've listened to, I've listened to a lot on initialism with torment, your debate and debate where you an intellectual giant that was embarrassing, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, I want to I want to say a word about the for those of you who know who who we've been talking about. Um, if he had known, I think what he was getting into, he would have done a much better job preparing. Right. And also, I think his argument was a little misunderstood. He wasn't saying we should just accept tradition. He was saying the tradition is the tradition reason. Uh, so I just I just want to be careful. Yeah, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, he deserves more respect than I think he sometimes gets. Which is not to say you're disrespecting right. him. Well, that particular thing. Um, <laughs> so, okay, all right. And that's maybe because he was unpaired. That's fine. Um, so a logical fallacy is a built also built authority. And in my experience, that's the only thing I ever hear from adherents who don't conform built authority. Like you said, you have to explain why. And if you claim to evangelical, if you claim Protestant, not going to act, imagine. And so like, you don't believe what you actually say you're, if you're not going to admit that. Especially, and I don't, I interact with lay people about this a lot. And I'm like, fine, lay people don't get that. But, but if you're an elder, if you're a leader, if you're an intellectual giant, and you don't see that, somewhat borderline shameful and really tough. So have you, so then my question on top of that is that, but then also what are the best on the subject? Like I know on your blog you guys have a very reasonable textual argument, but outside of that, I don't even, I mean, that was right, but outside of that, I don't know any, it won't be. Um, <laughs> uh, What's that? Oh, well, yeah, four, yeah, so four views, That's those are good ones. Um, I'm I'm assuming he doesn't meet in print um, because you also have the two views of hell with Edward, late Edward Fudge and, and Robert Peterson, uh, and you've got the four views that you edited and the previous one of that. So you do have some print ones, but but if, let, let's let's ask, answer the question in the context of live debate or, or blog debate or whatever. Um, yeah, 
as far as specific texts, I mean, I think Second Peter two six is my favorite go. Yeah, like I did last night. I asked a question: What did Peter believe that happened to God? Makes precisely what he he answers that question on paper. I just asked the question. I just ask it again. Yeah. It will become like the cities of Sodom. It will be reduced to ashes. Is that what you're asking? To clarify, what I'm like biblical text? Or are you talking books? To what you? I'm trying to ask is: In your experience, you have mm. reasonable interactions with people about the text. Yeah, have there been traditionalists that have yeah. argued with you from the text? Honestly, in the world, because I, I don't I don't swim in like really like far conservative evangelical circle. And so I, I don't have a lot of resistance on this. And I think uh, maybe, I don't know, I, I, I've i maybe I've developed the reputation of, of being honest, as honest as I can with the text. So when I say this is where I'm at, the assumption is, um, oh, well, he must have biblical reason for it. So I haven't met, I mean, this, watching your debates, I just cringe at the Solomon and just the real antagonism almost. I'm just like, and I just, I, that hasn't been really my world. I remember I had some students of mine at uh, Eternity Bible College, but a um, Southern Seminary. Oh, no, no. I had a friend of mine who was at Southern Seminary, very conservative uh, school. And um, and he heard there, he, he said, oh, you, you went to EBC. Oh, did you know Preston's an annihilationist now? And his first response was, well, I sat under him. And his first response was, well, he must have really good biblical reasons for it. He goes, I don't probably agree with it, whatever. But that was his initial response. So that's, um, so I but I haven't had, I haven't had kind of like a lot of good success, like aha moments talking to people. Part, I mean, part of it, because I haven't really planted my stake here until recently. Like I've been leaning this way for a while. We've been waiting. I've been waiting for this conference. So yeah, maybe we'll see now after I just got converted last night. So yeah. Yeah. Or came out of the closet. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, the only, the only one I can think of that I've had that I think was largely focused on the text was my debate with uh, Len Pettis. Um, and then that was, I don't, I don't have a high opinion of his interpretation of the text he went to and their relevance to the debate, but at least it was biblically focused. And, and I just want to use this as an opportunity. Um, many of you know that I'm an enormous fan of Dr. James. White of Alpha and Omega Ministries. And I think that no debate on this topic would be more biblical and more focused on the text than a debate between Dr. White and myself. Um, and, and he knows I want to debate him. So I just, in case he in case he listens to this, you know, hopefully he'll hear me and say, this would be a fantastic debate between- Has he said no or what's the, or he, hasn't he, said anything? Or? He doesn't He doesn't want to become the apologist for hell. He doesn't want this to become the focus of his ministry. And he doesn't really want to touch eschatology more broadly either. Um, I mean, it doesn't stop him from critiquing our view on occasion. I will say he's very respectful about it, at least in recent mm -hmm. years. So- um, yeah, hopefully, you know, hey, why don't all of you email Alpha and Omega Ministries and say, hey, let's see James White and Krista debate. Um, <laughs> that would be a good one. But but in short, no, there, there typically is not a lot of good live or blog form interaction on this topic on the text itself. Next question, just in time. <laughs> a big point to define immortality. That seemed to be a thing. So can you elaborate on how that compares? Mm -hmm. How are you defining immortality in regards to conditional I guess, yeah, you, you've done more thoughts on that, thinking on this. And I, I thought his response is really interesting. And, um, yeah, Chris, what do you <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's clear to me that the absolute utmost respect for Dr. Allison, he's obviously wrong. Um, if you, I mean, serious. If he, no, no, no. Hear me out. Hear me out. So he quoted to, he quoted First Timothy, uh, First Timothy, where it says immortality belongs to God alone. Same word is in fact used to describe what the what the saved get. Just look at First Corinthians, First Corinthians 15, 15 yeah, Second yeah. Corinthians five. If it's all over the place and in other places where that language isn't used, so it seems to me that from a biblical basis, clearly uh, immortality is something that we experience that we get when we are become partakers of the divine right. nature. This, and this is a, um, you know, some of us in here are either considering Eastern Orthodoxy or are leaning that way or whatever. One of the things, I'm not an Eastern Orthodox, but one of the things they, I think, have a lot to offer is their view of theosis and divina, uh, divination, not divination. <laughs> That's something different. Um, That's the LDS. No, uh, uh, deification, thank you, uh, or theosis. But but that was that's actually coming into the Protestant.
tradition as well. You've got people like, what's the name of the guy? Richard Middleton, right? Um, who who uh, <laughs> is arguing for that kind of thing. It's actually becoming increasingly popular. Um, I think the message is clear from scripture that the, the that Im- immortality is a communicable attribute, yeah. not an incommunicable one. Yeah. And it's explicitly said so in places like First Corinthians. That's, that's, that's what was my thought. I just haven't done as much work on that. I don't know the historical. I always assume that Augustine had assumed some you know, intrinsic immortality of the soul and therefore the soul can't be destroyed. And I'm just, I'm not an expert in Augustine era. Um, I, I would, so my, um, I have wondered, I, I know the conditionalist argument that um, immortality is, is a gift given you know, through the resurrection, faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore unbelievers aren't immortal. And I just wonder though, if there's room, there could be room. This is, I guess, an antecedent argument that would need to be addressed. Room for some sort of existence ongoing that wouldn't be technically classified as immortal so that the idea of immortality isn't just um, never-ending existence. It's something more about both never-ending but also quality. Kind of like we talk about you know, eternal life isn't just eternal bios. It's just zoe, just like you know, a, a quality of life. So that's one my one hesitation with even the term conditional. I don't, I don't think, I, I do think that the con- conditional immortality, not, not, as it's taught in scripture, which I absolutely believe in, isn't quite enough to prove uh, conditionalism. I do. This is where I do like to elevate the language deduction, kind of like if all we had was conditional immortality, there could be room for some sort of existence that wouldn't be classified as the, the biblical concept of reality. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying I, I think we would need to argue argue for that, not just. Well, let me try to argue that. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so first of all, historically, I'm trying to be funny. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I've succeeded. Um, historically, the the tradition <laughs> traditional and I'm going to quote a bunch of them in my talks today. Um, they have a very, very openly described the state of the wicked as immortality, explicitly. Um, and, and even lay people today will say, you're, you, everybody gets eternal life. The question is where you live it. Right? So, I mean, this is very, this is very, is it possible that uh, there's some form of the tradition that where they're not made immortal? That's possible, but that's more novel than the view that we have. That's more ahistorical than the view that we have. But that's first thing. Secondly, um, we're upheld in existence right now, yet we're sure to die. That's what makes us mortal, right? So, so if God, if, if we're going to say, that the resurrected wicked are not immortal. God is just sort of upholding them in existence. Number one, how is that different from now? And number two, if that's the case, why will we die, but they won't? Um, and if they don't, uh, then they're immortal. And that's the th- that was my third point, which is that the word immortal to us in English, I think carries certain connotations that I'm not convinced biblical, the Greek word uh, for, for, for immortality and incorruption, I'm not convinced they have those in common connotations. For example, athanatos. That doesn't mean immortal. It means not dying, not death. So if if the wicked are resurrected and however they're upheld in existence, if they're never going to die, that is by biblical definition immortal. Athanatos, not yeah. dying. Okay. That's my view. Yeah. Anyway. I don't know if it was a, a semantics of a definition where his definition, the incommunicable, more like eternal. Mm. No beginning, no right. no end versus you can have a beginning and no end when we talk about eternal life. I didn't know if it's semantics or there was some Greek stuff that I definitely know about. Thanks. Yeah, sure. Anybody else have any questions want to come up? And I just took a bite of my taco. I can't talk right now. <laughs> You know, I, I wonder where Dr. Evans went. I was hoping we talked to him for a few minutes. Um, I just want to say, if there are any of you breakout speakers, I know some of you are here, who would like to come up and say a word or two about what your talk is going to be, please feel free to come up, and we'd love to give you guys an opportunity to encourage people to come to your session. Um, I certainly want some people to come to Williams and mine, but I don't want everybody to. So if you're, you know, please do consider going to Ella's and Zach Manis's and Rob's, uh, Bob Swan's, uh, and I think, I'm, is there a fourth one I'm getting? Nick, of course, Nick. Where, where is, so, somewhere around here. I don't know why I can't see him. Okay. Oh, well, did, ever, did all the breakout speakers, oh, I see Zach there. If anyway, but anyway, if any of you want to come up, please do, and Adela, say a word or two about what you're going to be talking about. But in the meantime, I'll let you ask a question. Well, real quick, I, I go into the back of the immortal question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Because, okay, yes, I get the, the way it's been framed in church history. I get that.
that in the lay level, but just going back to the Bible, is there any case that could be made for somebody um, lives on and yet isn't classified as biblical concept of immortality? I'm thinking, um, you know, the, the shades and shield or something, you know, people, some well, sort of afterlife. Yeah. Oh, so you're saying, oh, you're saying if you're if you're living forever in an embodied existence, yes. that means immortality. Yeah, that's all yeah. thanatos, not dying. Now, it, now okay. there are some who, so throughout church history, again, the wicked in hell have always been thought to be embodied, physical, resurrected people. Um, I'm aware of no historical <coughs> figures, no respected historical Christian have taught otherwise. Um, I think that we're on the verge of, if, if the tradition is going to continue advocating for some sort of eternal torment, it's going to have to be in disembodied, uh, a disembodied hell. Huh. Um, now, I have arguments against that too, um, but I think that's the direction they're going to have to go because I think that's the only way to get around the biblical language of immortality. Okay, that's good. Hey, Preston, last night you were talking about the curse of Adam, yeah. and then you were talking about the curse of the law and mm-hmm. the consequences both of those death. Uh, those curses came about at different times in Dian history, but they seem yeah. to, though they're running parallel, I want to add this question yeah. do they converge then in Jesus' ministry where he talks about the fact that, you know, rushing over from day to day life? In other words, uh, and in Paul's discussion, in other words, do both of those converge into one? If I understand your question, I think yes. Um, I mean, my understanding of the Old Testament story is that um, what happens in the garden sort of happens again in in the life of Israel. So the Israel is kind of like viewed as the new Adam. You see a lot of parallels, for instance, between Genesis and Genesis 12 and and 50, which, you know, it's kind of like we're replaying the story of Eden again. Like it didn't work out with that dude. So let's try it again with Abraham. And uh, it's not really working out. So that there is a lot of correlation between first language, death language, life language between Genesis 1 and 2, and then the ongoing story of, of Israel. So that when Jesus Jesus comes on the scene, he's both the new Adam and the new Virgin. I don't have an ad. <clears throat> yeah, come on up, Reese, if you want to ask. Reese is one of the members of the We Think Yale Facebook group, if you don't mind me saying so. Uh, How many people do you have in that group? It's, it's like Greg said, it's over 2,000, I think, by wow. now. Wow, yeah, that's huge. crazy. And, and just, to, just to be clear, it's all major views hell represented there. Um, so it's not just like a conditionalism high five party, a lot of traditionalists <laughs> and universalists. Yeah, real briefly. So, no, I grew up having nightmares about eternal torment. Initially about me, and then I think I got sort of resolved to my own salvation, but it's the whole idea. Um, and Chris, I've heard you say, if I... If I understood you, so I'm, I'm going to clarify some things that I've maybe or ask you to clarify what I've heard is that you think that I thought I've heard you say that you would rather be annihilated, you'd rather be tormented than annihilated, and which kind of makes me, well, you know, what's your whole motivation? I mean, why is obviously you're very motivated with all the stuff you do. Can you elaborate on that statement a little more? Sure. Um, for whatever reason, I fall into the same category of people that, that uh, Greeks like Augustine and Plutarch described for whom uh, an eternity of torment would have easily been preferable to ceasing to be. Um, and both Plutarch and Augustine, who, by the way, was not an annihilationist, but he, he said, uh, and I, I, if I had time, I'd bring up the quote for you. He said that on the instant that a wicked person were offered these two alternatives, either ceasing to exist or living forever in torment, they would exultantly, you know, happily accept being tormented for eternity. Now, I know that seems bizarre to some of you anyway, but it doesn't to me. Um, when I was a child, before I was a believer, I pictured what it would be, you know, so I, I was an atheist for uh, up until I was about 20, 20 years old. And when I was very young, I remember trying to imagine what it would be like to cease to exist. And of course, there's no way to do that. It's impossible because even when you're imagining it, you're existing, <laughs> you're conscious about it. The closest thing I could come to was just utter blackness, total blackness. It terrified, absolutely terrified me. Thought, I'm almost coming to tears just thinking about it. The thought of, I mean, I don't care. Look, I, I would rather smell the nasty aroma of a pile of dog doo-doo on the ground and never get to smell again. I would rather breathe in the smog of LA and feel air entering 
and exiting my lungs and never get to have a breath again. Um, now, maybe I'm not doing a good enough job making it sound as serious as I think it is, but I do think it's very serious. I think that annihilation is terrifying. Um, but I know that many don't. Uh, and so that's why for me, it's not, uh, not a big argument. And the only reason I, the only reason I make a big deal out of that when I'm talking about this is to show that what a person fears more is a very subjective thing. And it's a cultural thing. And it's a, it's a historical thing where you land in history, where you land in cultures. Uh, these are the kinds of things that will determine uh, where you come down on that question. And that's why we've got to go to the Bible. It doesn't matter if that's what verifies me more. Matters as Any thoughts to add to well, that? Well, I, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't agree with you on that, but that you framed it in a subjective sense. So we, we can agree to disagree. Um, I guess I would say that as long as you keep it subjective, that this is how you feel that I'm yes. fine with it. But if you did make it more objective, I think that you kind of undercut the, the view of like, well, wait a minute, if annihilation, if ECT is so bad, it reflects the character of God. If you actually flip it, say no, actually annihilation worse, you kind of are still left with a tension of God's being something that's uh, to take the view that this isn't as safe as bad. <laughs> well, and, and I've, I've, some of the people on the Rethinking Hell team have made a distinction between what's objectively worse and what's subjectively worse. Um, if life in and of itself is a good thing, and I think it is, and to be deprived of even that would be more severe than to give the wicked life forever because then they're at least getting life, which is an objectively good yeah. thing. So, so I would argue that from an objective standpoint, what is real regardless of how we feel about it, annihilation is severer, more severe than uh, life and torment forever. But on the other hand, there's also the subjective element. How do we feel, you know, what would it be like to experience that? And we all have heard stories and oh, maybe even know people who've been in the most imaginable pain and would love to die to get it over with. Now, I think there's an element of that of them thinking there's something on the side. If they didn't think that, I'm not so sure they'd be so quick to want that. But putting that aside, the point is, is that uh, subjectively, it may be that eternal torment is more severe and objectively it's annihilation. That's possible, in which case it could be that might help us to better understand how these different fates are consistent or not with the character. We also have a problem. I mean, again, we're dealing with the subjective thing, so it's almost pointless going, but I mean, there's plenty of people who would rather commit suicide and die live on in a life that'd be more miserable than death. Even do things that we take them out of his misery or if how is suffering, we feel it for humane reasons, not because we think that's worse than suffer because even why power and I just read that. I'm not on, living on a farm. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't I don't know if that really I my assumption is most people aren't gonna buy that. <laughs> Tell that to Augustine and Plutarch. I mean it, you know it, it depends on where uh, you live in time. Maybe the ancients. Maybe the yeah. ancients, yeah. The ancients yeah. didn't get everything wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, please go ahead. Well, I am one of the presenters. I just want to say thing uh, something quickly. I come from uh, Roman Catholicism background and also reformed theology and reformed theology, uh, the holiness of God and the sovereignty of God is a huge thing. So when I heard Professor Allison say, when he put up the nature of God, I was like, oh, he's went in a good direction. But when I heard him say that somehow uh, suffering uh, is the is satisfying for the sin for a holy God, that totally strikes me the wrong way as opposed to death being what has always been the case for the uh, satisfaction of the remission for sin. So it's something we will talk about is what I wanted to say that really. Do you want to tell the people here your name so that if they want to listen to your talk? Yeah, hey. my name is uh, Bob Swan. I'm from Massachusetts, but I've avoided the uh, Massachusetts accent. I can give it to you if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that out of the podcast. Okay. All right. Thanks. Any other uh, questions or anything? We've got a couple more minutes before we got to go back downstairs and start breaking out to breakouts. But if there's anybody who wants to ask one more question or a breakout who wants to come say one more thing, come on up. Otherwise, okay, we got one more. I mean, this maybe goes beyond, again, the scope here. I'd just love to hear your comments on the work of Peter Enns. <laughs> I, was just, I spoke at a conference with him a few weeks ago, and first time I met him in person, wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, uh, it, well, I just I don't like to give general comments. Do you have anything specific? I would hate to, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So to repeat, he, you know, specifically, 
specifically about Pedens, he's less concerned with getting it all right. He's, he's more okay with kind of the messiness of not getting it right. He's okay with tensions in scripture. He would say con- flat out contradiction in scripture. And, and um, I, I'm, I, w- I would be more bent that way. I'm very okay with messiness. For instance, I would be more reformed like Chris, but I'd also say I think prayer moves God, changes history even. And like, oh yeah, both. I'm like, well, I think scripture teaches both and it really doesn't bother me. So I, I'm very okay with that. Um, I do believe the Bible is fallible. Um, I don't, and I think it is historically accurate, but I don't need perfect accuracy for it to be authoritative. I'm okay with you know, some of that. But but I would still land on, I think there's a lot more um, uniform. I think it's, the Bible's not as messy as he makes it out to be. And it's, there's not as many contradictions. I think he does, lo- he loves to, I think some of this is his trajectory. He really raw, bad experience with really conservative evangelicals. I think that plays a role in his trajectory. Um, and so I, I would, I would, uh, I would say, okay, he brings up all these tensions and contradictions. I'm like, well, there, there's been good responses to those. You know, he highlights all these contradictions, whatever. And like, okay, maybe some of those are really hard to work through. Other ones are like, well, you didn't, you didn't acknowledge this, this, and this that people have said solve that contradiction, like contradictions between Kings and Chronicles and numbers. You know, the numbers don't match up. And I'm like, well, there's about. 220 times when there's numbers mentioned, and there's only like 11 of those where there's disagreement between King's Chronicle. Everybody freaks out over the disagreement numbers, and there are some disagreements. And the disagreements go in like both directions. Sometimes Chronicles is higher, sometimes it's actually lower. So there's not a clear agenda. And so all, if all you do is expose the messiness of these contradictions without saying, so it's almost like he, he emphasizes a little, little bit. All that to say, I very much appreciate his, his work. Um, I, I just don't line up on several things, but yeah, I appreciate it. I'll just say I'm an inerrantist. I'm form and I'm a young earth creationist, so you can imagine I don't have a lot of positive things to say about Peter. Um, but I don't, I, I'm just kidding a little bit. Uh, I don't know enough about him to say anything meaningful. And besides, it's, it's uh, we got about you know, 10 minutes or so before we got to get to our breakout sessions. So uh, Preston, thank you so much yeah. for doing this with me and thank you for coming and uh, speaking at the conference and, and emceeing it today. And uh, I, I just want everybody to know here, I'm so thankful you guys are here. Uh, it's been such a blast for me. I get, this is like, I mean, I live in the Pacific Northwest where there's not a whole lot of this kind of depth of conversation. And so when I get to have these kinds of conversations, people it's it's like it's like finding an oasis in the middle of a desert after you've been walking you know so thank you for being yeah. here thank you guys for being here and i hope that you guys enjoy the rest of the conference Preston, do you want to say a word before we go or- oh thanks for listening to theology in the raw and the rethinking hill podcast